This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, black athletes earn billions of dollars for colleges, but who's looking out for their interests? And solidarity. A veteran political organizer explains the meaning of the word. But first... Activists have been confronting local governments across the nation with lists of demands, mostly involving the police. Max Rameau is with Pan-African Community Action, which is calling for community control of the police in Washington, D.C. We asked Rameau why proposals to defund the police have gotten so much more press coverage than community control. There are some high-profile organizations, a lot of high-profile organizations, who are pushing the defunding demand, and that's why it is getting way more attention than community control over police. I think also community control of police, even though the idea has been around a lot longer, because we are envisioning something new, as opposed to envisioning the dissolution of something that already exists, there's a lot more intellectual work that has to go into explaining what this community control of the police means. And we, frankly, as a movement, haven't done enough of that work. So we need to continue to do that work so we can articulate what our vision is for the future in a way that people can get on board with and understand and grasp in very simple terms. But also we need to do the work of doing the very, very technical terms and the very technical aspects of pushing for community control of the police. With that said, I think this is an extremely exciting moment in history that young people in particular are imagining a world where this tremendous institution of imperialism and certainly of the police state that exists here in the United States, they're imagining a world where that institution is gone. And even though I don't think that that goes quite far enough in funding the police, because we have to explain what happens on the other side of that, I think the first step towards revolutionary thought and revolutionary action is imagination like this, is, is daring to imagine the world with this major institution, with this major building, with this major block gone from our lives, which is a very difficult thing to do. And I'm excited and inspired by the fact that so many people are thinking about that. I do think, however, that we need to interrogate this concept of defunding the police one step further and evolve it even to the next level. Well, let's do some of the work of explaining community control of police as your organization sees it. Yeah, so Pan-African Community Action is an organization out of Washington, D.C., and we think we should be fighting for at this particular time in history, and of course many other times as well, is for power. We don't want to spend our time trying to convince white people to not be prejudiced against us. We want to remove power from the equation, so we need to shift power from their hands into our hands. Stokely Carmichael, later known as Kwame Ture, used to say that if a white man wants to lynch me, that's his problem. However, if the white man has the power to lynch me, that's my problem. So there's distinguishing there between the attitudes of racial prejudice and the ability to implement those attitudes, which is power, we think of as colonialism or white supremacy. So if our major push then is to shift power, 
And how do we do that in the context of policing? And we think the way we do that is by shifting control over the institution of police, but not necessarily the specific institutions. And that means ending the relationship that the current police that we think of now have over our communities, over black communities, and replacing that with new forces that are loyal to the black communities uh, that we live in and that we're a part of. When we think about power, when you think about how we have power over institutions in our community, and this is an institution that I think we can take control over in the next several years in this country. And there are at least two ideas on how the people who do administer the police on the local level would be chosen. Yes, I think this is a very exciting de- development as well, is the fact that we have a broad agreement, it seems, on the idea that we should shift power from downtown white communities, to use the uh, ocalocalism, to our local black communities. We have broad agreement on that, but now what is emerging are different ideas about the exact strategies we would use in order to realize that. And those ideas are coming up without any fighting whatsoever among the groups who are coming up with those different ideas. This is exciting for me because when I went to Chicago to learn from Frank Chapman and others in the National Alliance Against Racial Police Reform, and we were able to learn from them and were eager to do so. Uh, their model there is to have an elected board, a control board, a board that would control the police that is elected, and they would go through the city council in Chicago or whatever other city this would be implemented in as a means of getting this board that would allow the community to control the police. And of course, this is the more traditional way of thinking about it, and it's very powerful. And they have made tremendous inroads, and I don't think anyone is further along in their plans than they are over in Chicago. In Washington, D.C., where I am with Pan-African Community Action, we have not been able to make inroads with the elected officials there. The organizing in Chicago has been so powerful and so strong that they've forced local elected officials to pay attention to them. So they therefore have been able to have some influence, even some power over uh, elected officials uh, in Chicago. We have not been able to do that in D.C. So that never even occurred to us to go that route. So our route has been two things. One is go directly to the ballot. What we're looking for is a ballot initiative where each district, each ward in the District of Columbia in Washington, D.C., would get to vote on whether or not they want to keep their existing police force or if they want that police force out and to replace it with a community police force. And we don't want to take control over the existing police force any more than a colonial colonized people would want to take over a colonial army. What we want instead is to have a new force. And then we think that that board should be randomly selected. So instead of the board being voted in, that that board will be randomly selected, basically names in a hat of every human being who lives in the neighborhood, not representatives of corporations or churches or whatever. Everyone who lives in that neighborhood would basically get their name put a hat, randomly picked out, and they would get a seat on the board for a year or two-year terms. Yes, and you think that kind of setup's advantage would be that no moneyed parties or influential rich parties would be able to manipulate candidates for a board. Exactly right. So I think the elections in the United States are often called bourgeois elections, where money plays the biggest single role in determining who is elected. And people who are more photogenic, people who are taller, 
lighter skin, better educated, whether or not that means they know more or not, and more money tend to get elected more often than those who fall on the other side of the same categories. Men also get elected more often than women. So by going to random selection, as opposed to elections, we would eliminate two things that exist. One is the bias of people who vote. So people who vote have some bias towards people with certain amounts of schooling or bias towards men over women. That bias is eliminated because even though the people who are eligible to run for office are still the ones who can run, who can be seated, they're chosen completely at random, not by the whim of the electorate. And the second thing that it eliminates is the ability of corporations to come in and dominate an election by dumping a bunch of money in. Corporate influence in elections in the United States is well documented. It is a gross distortion of the democratic process, and uh, we think that it would be no time at all before we saw a community police board brought to you by Walmart or brought to you by whatever the major corporation is in that town, and that would be bad for democracy. That would be bad ultimately for black communities that are looking to uh, exert their own form of community safety and community control. Under that proposal, those who would control the board would be chosen much like jurors are chosen. But the advantage to elections for the board might be that in these elections, lots of people are involved and ideas are exchanged. And we have a community that is actually actively participating in the discussion about what policing should be. Yes, I think that is true. At least it can happen in theory. I think what has happened in practice is that complicated ideas and nuanced ideas are reduced in elections to sound bites. And so some complicated idea about, for example, the exact level of taxation or how much money should go into one department versus another department is reduced to something like read my lips. And it's made so simple and so, it's so absurd that then the the idea of a public discourse really loses its value. One of the things that I find most powerful about grassroots community organizations is the extent to which we participate or we move political education, popular education, engagement with our neighbors, with our community members about these ideas, about ideas about race, about class, about gender, about social issues, and we engage in some community discussions about that. And some organizations do really important work in that area. But a lot of organizations don't find the time to do it. If we had these community control boards, political education by grassroots organizations would be some of the most important work we've ever done. Because the person, the random person on the street who we're doing outreach to, who we're inviting to meetings, who we're feeding sandwiches and snacks to at these meetings and engaging in one-on-one discussions, could tomorrow be the person sitting on the police community control board and they could be making decisions about it would be more important for us to have these discussions with our neighbors not just once every four years and once every two years as we run up to november but every single day because every person we come in contact with could hold the keys of power in their hands over the next several months or the next year or whenever it was. It would be more important for us to engage in those discussions with this random selection than it is right now. And there will be no need to distort the conversation with these false deadlines of these November elections. The defund the police proposal, which is backed by Black Lives Matter and gets the most play, is mostly about allocation of resources as opposed to actual power over the police. 
Yeah. So while we're very excited about this moment and the fact that people are, are rethinking this society in such a fundamental way, we do have some critiques of the model of defunding. And in particular is the one that you brought out is that the defund the police does not account for shifting power. Even if it worked in theory, it could account for removing this institution from the hands of certain actors of white power, the white power structure, but it would not explain the next part that we need to do, which is to shift power over to working class black communities, particularly women and LGBTQ folks. And that's actually what we're fighting for, not just removing power from white hands. We need to bring power into working class black communities. And we need that power to mean something, not just in a way where we have these individual leaders, but in a collective way. So we need to address that. And that needs to be baked in to the actual proposal. So defunding does cover one area, which is removing this institution or starving this institution. It does not cover the next area, which is what happens when this institution falls, what rises to take its place. And does that thing that rises to take its place benefit us or harm us? And is that controlled by us or is it not controlled by us? And we think the limitations of defund is that it doesn't take those questions into account in a serious and substantial way. Well, to be fair, some defund proposals propose that funds be allocated for community people to do all kinds of work that nowadays falls under the police. So we could also have conversations about who controls those community folks who are replacing the police in some respects, even under defunding. This is an incredible part of the defund thing, and I don't want to make it seem as if we have some direct opposition to it. What we're trying to do is sharpen it up, not so much oppose it. So we're trying to sharpen the, uh, the concept of defunding, not to directly oppose it. We are not in diametric opposition to it, for sure. But yes, I think these are some of the more powerful and more compelling stories and arguments around defunding, is that it would take funding away from police forces and move them into other areas that we need them to go. And we want them to go. We support those ideas. We support the idea that in any society, we should be moving money away from attacking, incarcerating, et cetera, human beings, vulnerable portions of the society. And we should instead be funding the things that people need, housing, healthcare, education, recreation, all kinds of things like that. So we're in full support of that. That's not the area where we have any disagreement at all. And we're, we're thrilled that particularly young people are imagining what budgets could look like. This could be the beginning of participatory budgeting in a way that we've only dreamed of before. And I hope that that, that is the beginning of this. With that said, let's take one big step back here. Well, so at, at Pan-African Community Action, we are students of the dialectical process. And we have concluded is that police themselves as an institution, even if whether it's this form or previous form, are an absolute necessity anytime there's private ownership of property. Anytime there's private ownership of property, there must be police. There has to be because that's the force that protects the private property. And that police took the form of Roman centurions way back in the day, and they take the form of these police that we see out here murdering young black people today in the United States. But those things are all necessary anytime that there's private property. So if that's true, that means that then the order of operations is that there's private property and then that necessitates the creation of police. And anytime there's private property, there cannot not be police. So if the police are defunded, but there is still private property, 
then something is going to rise to replace what we now call the police. And we believe that will be private police departments, private security firms, and basically private mercenary firms. And in fact, that is what existed in the United States before the tremendous growth in government. That's exactly right. And I would think we could be going forward to the past here, or we could return to that kind of moment. And the important thing to note about this, two important things. One is that if rich people are just able to replace what we now call the police department with their own private security, then we haven't really replaced, we haven't really defunded or dissolved the police. We haven't abolished the police. We've just changed their form. The second thing to note is that the evolution of what the police are as compared to, for example, the centurions who were in the Roman Empire, to what they are here today, is that what they are here today is ostensibly a public good. The police are out there ostensibly, we know they're not actually doing this, but ostensibly they're there to enforce the law that has been drafted and legislated by elected officials, supposedly on behalf of the majority of people. Once that force, however, becomes a private force, they would no longer be responsible for enforcing the law of the country or the state or the city. They would then become responsible for enforcing the rules of their boss. So if Walmart suddenly decides, because there's no police department, that they have to hire their own security, and their own security decides we don't want to allow certain kinds of people into our stores, then that's not even the law. Even if it's against the law, there's no one to then who we can go complain to. Who's then going to enforce the law? There's no police. Who's going to enforce the law? This will be then the private security force that will enforce not the law, but the rules of their boss. As bad as the police are now for us, imagine how bad it's going to be when they don't even have to pretend to be following the law. So that's one problem. The second problem is that if we have the dissolvement of police departments happen either uniformly or in an uneven manner, in other words, in some cities there's no police, in other cities there are, then what's going to happen when there is a organization of white supremacists who are inspired by Dylan Roof? Dylan Roof, of course, was the young white supremacist who murdered nine black people in a church service in Charleston, South Carolina. When the next group who's inspired by Dylan Roof comes, when they decide to go to a black church, instead of going to the black church in their city, in their town, in their rural area, they're going to see the two counties over, there's a majority black city with no police force. They're going to go there because there's no police force. And then when they go and they shoot up that church, if we don't have a security force already set up, our own private security force already set up, then who are we going to call? We're not even going to have our own police department that we control, a community control department that we can call and protect us from that. Well, you set up this scenario. How would you solve it? Well, solve it by having community control over the police. We'd have a police force that is directly represented by and ordered around by the community. I don't want to dissolve the police department. That doesn't mean the police department has, everyone in the police department has to have guns. It doesn't mean the police department has to be the same size that it is now. It doesn't mean the police department's job has to be to protect property. It does mean that if a bunch of white supremacists come to our town, we need a force that can, is ready to step up to them and neutralize them from attacks against us. And that only happens when we have community control of the police, where instead of the police being responsible and responsive to the white power structure downtown, they are responsible to and responsive to the communities that control them. And that means working class black communities. And we would need to intentionally have them disproportionately represented by women and LGBTQ folks. 
Community Pack. control of the police is the answer. You said that PACA was not successful in getting the ear of local officials in Washington, D.C., but that was before this explosive moment. Yes. So this explosive moment has brought a lot of attention. Uh, it also has brought some attention to the defund. We have a lot of people in D.C. who are pushing for the defund the police banner, and we're very excited that they're thinking about a society without police, or certainly a society with a force that is so substantially different than it is now that we can't even think about calling them police. So what we're engaged now in, so the process that we're engaged now is in political education, as we were before, with the members of our community to convince them that what we should be fighting for now is power, not for reform of the existing police, certainly to remove it from power, and that could happen through defunding, but we think that the way it should happen is by shifting power from them over to our communities. So we are now stepping up our efforts to engage our communities in political education to get us to agree that we should be fighting for power. And in this particular moment in, in history, we should be fighting for power and control over the forces of security in our own communities. This is a great political education opportunity for all of us. That was Max Rameau of Pan-African Community Action in Washington, D.C. Ajamu Baraka, national organizer for the Black Alliance for Peace, recently appeared on a podcast for Code Pink, the anti-war organization. Baraka agreed that U.S. advocates for peace overseas must also focus on police terror at home. Well, I see it as an opportunity to strengthen solidarity. There's no fakes here or there and that kind of chronology. I think I understand the spirit of what they're saying, that basically we have a responsibility as citizens of empire to put a break on the U.S. state. And that's important. So that, that is a criticism or a critique that we fully embrace. That is our responsibility. But at the same time, though, we are in solidarity with people who are struggling around the world. So we're not going to be confused by that. So we, we stand with and those of us like yourself we're standing with the people of Latin America. They have to understand that you are there because you are building opposition to U.S. policies uh, back in, in the U.S. And it's important for people from the U.S. to see firsthand uh, the conditions uh, and the consequences of U.S. policy. So, yeah, we definitely have to do that. that people are, are hopeful because, again, they understand that it's only going to be a, a popular resistance that would change U.S. policies. And, but they are concerned, like I am, with the moves we've seen being made these last few days to domesticate the opposition, uh, to keep it at a manageable level with the focus just being on so-called justice for George Floyd. What does that mean? George Floyd is dead. There's no justice for him. But what we can do is to put a, a critical view on the system that created the conditions that resulted in George Floyd's a life being taken. And when you put this the, the focus on the system, then you connect George Floyd to the police. You connect George Floyd to the military. Uh, you can connect George Floyd to the system. And that is what people are hoping is it happens. But the authorities are using the Congressional Black Caucus and, mm-hmm. and what we call Reverend Chicken Wings Sharpton. You know, they are doing everything in their power to subvert a radicalization of this movement. And we are hoping that they're not going to be successful in that because, you know, the world will benefit when there is an effective people-centered movement in the U.S. that we're able to shift power away from these, these gangsters back to the people. That was Ajamu Baraka of the Black Alliance for Peace.
Brescia Meadows was 14 years old when she shot her abusive father to death in their home in Warren, Ohio. Meadows was threatened with trial for murder as an adult. Her case was championed by a number of criminal justice reform groups, including the organization called Survived and Punished. Ms. Meadows was allowed to plead to involuntary manslaughter charges and was sentenced to a year in juvenile detention and six months in a mental health facility. Brescia Meadows is now 18 years old, free, and looking forward to her future. Right now, I'm legally um, off probation. I'm out of jail. I was on probation for about two years after I got out of jail. And it just actually, I just got off in, I think it was February or March of this year. With a lot of things in the world going on right now, it kind of feels like they still haven't noticed the injustice, but I believe I'm doing okay with everything going on. I'm just trying to help everything. I'm trying to help out as much as I can. Yes. Were you able to get involved in some of the demonstrations in the past week? Yes, actually, in Warren, Ohio, it was organized by Tiana Powell. She did like a really, really big peaceful protest, and I like attended it. Now, it's widely credited that a movement is what kept you from spending a very, very long time incarcerated. How do you feel about movement politics, and do you anticipate being a movement activist? Yes, that's what I've been. I've been talking to my friend Kelly Hayes about it, one of my collective members, and I really have been trying to get out there to become an activist. Because I just feel like it's something deeper waiting for me. And I feel like that's like my calling is to help other people. Because honestly, if it wasn't for the activists or the social media, I don't know if I would have got out because a lot of that came from a lot of the people requesting the judge let me free and then raising all the money and to go fund me to pay for the doctors and stuff. Well, you anticipate becoming an activist, but you have been a prisoner. Was that your first exposure to the criminal justice system? Yeah, I had never been to jail or anything like that. And how would you describe the conditions under which you and the other young women were incarcerated? The jail I was in, it was a, a juvenile, like it was a juvenile justice center where the girls and the boys we were in the same building, but we were in two different pods. We were kind of treated equally for the most part, but it was hell because I couldn't see anybody I wanted to. You know what I mean? The visits were just, we only got visits twice a week, or if you were like really great, you got it three times a week. But it was weird for me from going from in the house every single day, always kind of trapped in the house to Oh, now it's like I'm trapped in, you know what I mean, like in jail with nobody I know, and it's not anything I was used to. And at the age of 14, it was really scary. I mean, I think at the time with the mindset that I had as a child at 14, I would say that it was probably, it wasn't the best, but I think we made the best out of it. Do you think because of your experience that your activism in the future might revolve around the criminal justice system? Yes. That's why I want to go to college and I should be starting college here soon. I want to study criminal justice and psychology so that I know more before I go out and try to like into the community and try to do things. I want to know more and educate myself more 
so that, that way maybe I can help maybe find like different tactics or or use psychology like uh, use it against them you know use psychology against the system yeah that one is a little it's a little sketchy but I'm gonna I, I just know I'm gonna be able to work with it <laughs> I know this might be too personal a question, but how are you getting along with your family? Me and my mom and my sister and brother are are really close. And what about the activists from Survived and Punished? Are they more than just activists to you now? Yes, they are definitely more than just activists. I got to meet a lot of them, and so when I got to meet them, it actually is kind of like a big part of what opened my eyes to want to become an activist and want to go to school and study. Because when I went, they like really showed a lot of love. A lot of them I can actually call and talk to. Like if something's wrong, I can actually talk to them. And they actually, with that, like with everything that went on after everything was done, a couple of members from the Lifted Voices has took me into their wing kind of. And they, like now I organize with them and I like they're my collective. So Lifted Voices and Survive and Punish, so they work very close together, and they've been working close together for many, many years. So it's great. Most young people or adults who get into trouble with the law don't have organizations on the outside working on their behalf. How did you hook up with these activist allies? Honestly, I'm not very sure how everyone began, like, conversating with them. My mom had talked to Kelly before. Kelly Hayes is the person that I go to, and as the head person of the list of voices. But she talked to her first, and I believe that's how everything started. But again, I'm not really sure because I was in jail. I didn't really get to hear too much because it was too much to hear the outside world and be stuck in there. But I know after when I got out, Kelly actually texted me. And then that's when I met everybody from the Survived and Punished when I went to Chicago. One of the problems that lots of adolescents have is depression, but you sound very up. Yeah, I had a, a lot of depression actually growing up. I want to say, I think I realized I was depressed at the age of like 10 or 11. And I know that sounds drastic because it's like, it's really, a lot of adults don't understand like kids can be depressed. And a lot of times, a lot of people like to look past it and say, oh, it's not just depression. It's, oh, they're just having a bad day or they're just moody. But I want to say I was depressed at the age of 10 because it was then that I realized, like, I couldn't get out of the slump. And honestly, I think I was depressed up until the age of, like, 17 and a half. (laughs) But honestly, I feel like I'm more set free now. So, like, off of probation and stuff. So I feel like I'm not really depressed. I think more so... I mean, we all have our bad days, you know. Brescia Meadows, speaking from her home in Ohio. Dr. Gabby Yearwood is a sociocultural anthropologist at the University of Texas at Austin. He recently authored an article titled, Playing Without Power, Black Male NCAA Student Athletes Living with Structural Racism. We asked Dr. Yearwood, can't a bunch of big, muscular star athletes take care of themselves? Right, exactly. So you take two sports, basketball and football, where the participants are irregularly large, and so you think they cannot be harmed. But I think we all know that harm can come in emotional as well as physical ways. I know that they experience both. So when we think about what violence looks like, 
I think about coaching and I think about the things people say to one another. And one of the things I often bring up as an example to students, you know, you take somebody like, like a Bobby Knight, yelling, screaming. I've had student athletes describe to me, or at least ask them to describe in class what coaches say to them in practice. And they're very reluctant to say that. It's inappropriate. And I said, well, what if I said those things to you while you were taking a test? And there's no student who would ever tolerate me speaking to them that way. But yet coaches are held to a standard where they're seen as motivators. And this is not by all means, not all coaches. You know, I was an athlete myself. I had amazing, great coaches who were supportive, amazing people. But, you know, there's things that you get to say as a coach to your athletes that nobody else would say, even as a parent. You know, if my child went to school and said, oh, this is how my dad talks to me, and he says that this is a way to motivate me to do better in school, I think CPS would show up at my house, and rightfully so. And they would say that that is doing harm, even if I'm not physically putting a hand on my kid. And so that kind of regular, consistent, lifelong experience, because we're talking about young men, I would say sometimes kids, they're 18, 19, but they've been experiencing this since they were five, six, when they first got involved in sports. All you have to do is watch Friday Night Tights, Pop Warner Football in Texas. And you see grown men demeaning saying very harsh things to eight-year-old boys. But we tolerate it in sport because sport is something that's very important in this particular society. And men, teaching men, teaching young boys how to become men is a very important thing. And so we allow for a certain kind of behavior that we wouldn't tolerate in any other space. Yes, many spectators get angry watching mostly white coaches berate and scream at these young black men, but they're excused by saying that, well, that's what these athletes need to motivate them. But white folks used to say that black folks needed to be whipped in order to be motivated to work. Right. I would say, well, what are we motivating them for? And, it, it, you know, it's part of a really complex system that everyone has bought into. So it's very hard to get people to see the potential problems in it. I would like to think that there are lots of other ways to be motivated as an athlete. I know I've experienced it. I know I've seen it without demeaning or, or debasing folks. But when you have young kids where that becomes the norm, then they grow to expect it. And they don't know how to respond to other kinds of treatment or coaching. And so when they're used to it, they normalize it and they say, well, this is what makes me better. And maybe, you know, it does make them a better athlete, but at what cost? And that's typically sort of what I'm focusing on. It's like, yeah, there are lots of ways to produce high-performing athletes, but at what cost? And are those costs worth it? And for maybe for the individual athletes, they say, yes, it's worth it. I think what I'm, I try to do with my work is to show that there are impacts. And we know that hurt people hurt people. And so if on some level we can think about the treatment of, of young boys all the way into their adulthood as violent in some ways, and, and we write it off as, oh, well, we're making them tough, we're making them men, then we shouldn't be surprised that men do violent things. We shouldn't tolerate it. We don't have to like it, but we shouldn't be surprised by it if they've been treated violently their whole life. 
You say that many of these athletes don't like to talk about how they're treated, but at the same time, you say that many of them harbor significant anger and frustration and sadness because of their treatment. How do they balance that, being reticent about it and yet being profoundly affected? It's really hard. They do a lot to try to cope with it. They rationalize the potential for becoming professional athletes or coaches at at high levels, either in college or in the pros, that will afford them access to significant salaries. And so they try to create a rationalization that, oh, if I put up with this, then either I become a a pro athlete or I might become, you know, a head coach eventually in college football or pro football and I'm still making a lot of money. So it's still kind of worth it and I'm still successful. But I think they also carry around a level of sadness. And I saw that in the athletes that I got to know during my research. And since then, with student athletes that I've taught, that they know that they have to change themselves. They know that they have to be different in those spaces because that system, in this case, college sports, has so much control over their lives. Some of it they accept, um, and they're willing to put up with it. For a very small few, there are some tangible benefits. But for a large majority of them, that sadness, I think, plays out in self-harm. It plays out in troubled personal relationships that are both intimate and friendly. It plays out, for me, what I saw in their education and access to education. They, They just don't have much left in There's a lot of surveillance that goes on to sort of prevent them from, in many places, to prevent them from getting into trouble. But that's not teaching them really to be independent. There are a lot of other folks who demonstrated the high rate of depression and drug and alcohol addiction of former professional athletes upon retirement. And that's a very small bunch of people. And so we think about all of the college athletes who go through this system and then at the end, they're spit out and there's nothing left for them. You know, there's no pro option, there's no lucrative contract, there's no coaching job, and they're going to struggle. And, and then I think that in some level that they know it. They may not be able to articulate well all the times, but we're also we're talking about young people, right? We're talking about 18, 19-year-olds. Any 18 or 19-year-old trying to consistently and, and maturely talk about their feelings and their emotions at a time when they're going through so much change, you know, there's a lot to expect of anyone without strong therapy, experience where you you learn the language and you learn the tools any 18 year old is going to struggle in any context but you add this added pressure of oh well you're also going to be nationally televised everybody in the world is going to be watching you people are going to be commenting on you and your character and your family and your community if you drop a pass right or you miss a basket you know you hear people talking about their moms and their dads and the neighborhoods they're from based on that and that's that's a lot you know i met guys who didn't like going home because everyone was asking them, you know, they couldn't even go to church without being bothered about how they were going to perform at the next game. Yes, the experience of college for the black college athlete is quite different than the experience of just about everybody else. People go to college, they feel a new freedom, which they exercise in doing drugs and drinking a lot, many of them. But for black college athletes who are so important to the prestige and finances of their schools, there is constant surveillance. Oh, absolutely. The system can't afford for them to fail because it will collapse. And the economy that pays for 
coaches, pays for stadiums, pays for the doctors and the medical staff and the assistant coaches and the administrative staff. They are completely reliant on these 18-year-old boys <laughs> to fund it. So they can't afford for them to fail because if they fail, they can't send their kids to college. You know, I've had the students of college coaches in my class, classes in the past, and they've said, you know, if we don't do well, if the team doesn't do well, then my dad loses his job and then I can't go to school for free because he's an employee of the university, so I don't get my benefit. Forgetting that dad's coach is making $200,000 at least in many cases, and they're thinking critically about how to save their money. And so they are under constant surveillance. You know, football and basketball are, are their only true revenue-generating sports. They generate all of the revenue that pays everybody's salaries and pays for all the scholarships for every student-athlete at that school. And yet these young athletes are supposed to be grateful to the institution. <laughs> right. That idea of gratefulness to me is really troubling. And it always bothers me that they should, you know, that somehow they're, they're getting a free education and that they're fortunate and they should just be grateful that they get that. And that kind of rhetoric really bothers me because no one is under the pressure. So when I've had student athletes, especially football and basketball players, keep in mind, softball and baseball have horrible traveling schedules. I've had students from every sport in my classes and they put in tons of work, lots of energy, but no, you know, they don't get the same kind of attention and they don't generate the revenue in the way these two sports do. And so that's one of the reasons why I focus on football and basketball. And so, you know, I've had, you know, football, basketball players talk about their schedule. I had a football player once describe, I had him walk the class through how he learns his playbook and how he, just a, a very basic play and then all the variations off of that basic play and what he has to learn to do that. And then the scale at which he has to learn the, the immense amount of information. And this was in a small seminar advanced class. And I had really bright, really smart students in there. I had an engineering student in there and they all looked at what we'd written on the board and what he described. And they were like, there's no way I could do that. They're like, forget it. They're like, I'd rather do engineering. It's way easier. And, you know, and these are kids who sit in the stands during the football games and share them on. And they'd never thought about how much these guys have to learn. And one of the students turned to him and he asked him, he's like, so when do you have time to study? <laughs> and he just laughed. And I laughed. I was like, that's the, that's the point. I'm like, who has time to study on top of this, right? He's supposed to be studying for math and English and anthropology and whatever else courses he's taking. In addition to doing the studying that he has to do to learn the playbook, the practice time and the, and the physical sort of abuse of, of practice to prepare for a game, the physical toll of playing those kinds of sports. And then, you know, he might be walking around with a concussion, <laughs> right? And bruised ribs and bruised knee, and then supposed to be at peak performance academically <laughs> and peak performance physically. I've had guys come back who play professional in the NFL come back to finish their degree and they said playing pro sports is way easier than being a college student way easier <laughs> and that puts it in, in some context right you go play for, as a professional athlete and you have less pressure on you you have more time your, your schedule is more free i'm not saying it doesn't have problems it has a whole other set of problems but compared to what we're asking of these student athletes is ridiculous at the typical college campus, black men make up at least half the football team, most of the basketball team, but only about 
2% of the student body. And that sends a signal, doesn't it, that blacks are only welcome on the campus to play ball and bring in money. Absolutely. So it sends a false image. So it creates multiple problems, right? It fuels the stereotype that black men are only athletes. So that if you're on a predominantly white campus and the only black males that you encounter are athletes because they make up a very visible and uh, noticeable population on campus because they're playing basketball and football, then you're recruiting certain kinds of body types, right? So then you assume that all black males are big and strong and muscular when the black community in the United States is one of the most unhealthy populations in the United States in terms of diabetes, obesity, hypertension, high blood pressure. But yet you have these specimens of physicality walking around very much marked because they're wearing their athletic clothing that marks them so everybody can identify them. Then if those are the only black males you encounter, then you're like, oh, well, yeah, then all black males are athletes. All black males are big. And then if they are, from your perception, not performing academically in the way you think they should be, then you add a whole other level to it. And so during my research and during my time teaching, you know, I've met many black males who are not student athletes, but who often get athletes, they're student athletes, just because they're black male. They don't have to actually look athletic. They don't have to be wearing any athletic gear. But because they're black and they're male, they get asked. Or it's assumed that they're an athlete. And so it's a misrepresentation. And so if you're also picking from a particular pool of black males, because there are a lot of really strong, (laughs) intelligent, and strong, I mean, in terms of intellectual capacity, black males out there, I went to an Ivy League school, and I, I did run track, but I had black male friends who were engineering majors, who were pre-med, who were pre-law, and who were also great athletes. But if you're picking from a pool of students who are struggling academically in high school, but they also have to, but they are also, because they've invested all of their worth in playing sport, then you're bringing in people who are also going to struggle in a college setting, and they're sitting in class with people who have invested all of their time in academics. So it's, it's an unfair comparison, right? So you're not going to take the average student who has spent no time investing in, in athletics and all of a sudden throw them on the football field and then value them based on their ability to run a post route or to kick a, you know, or to throw a ball. But yet we are taking folks who have invested their whole life in sports and maybe not as a priority over academics and expecting them to perform academically similarly to the people who've dedicate their lives to academics. It's an unfair comparison. It doesn't mean that those athletes aren't capable of high academic standards. They absolutely are. You cannot be a top-notch college football player or basketball player and not be intelligent. It's impossible. What it takes to learn those sports, these kids are very intelligent, but it's all directed in, in one area. So here we have these black men on campus being treated in often quite stereotypical ways. But in recent years, we've seen the phenomenon, the renewed political awareness among black athletes. How is that accepted on the college campus? You know, I think it varies. I think it depends on the community in which those kids are able to express their politics in a way that feels comfortable to them. You know, I applaud Colin Kaepernick. There are not very many people who would normally give up tens of millions of dollars for an ideal. And he did that. And I think he demonstrated that other people can do it too. And so I think that often gets forgotten. He, he knew what he could lose. And so I think on a college camp, but you know, he had 
that ability as a professional athlete. As a college athlete, what's at stake, right, if, if you protest? Some of them do and in ways that, that are meaningful for them, but their full freedom is not the same as you or I or another student on that campus who wants to protest any kind of politics around any kind of subject. Because at any point in time, if that politics is disagreeable with a coach, they could be dismissed. They could be benched. They could be kicked out of school. Me, as a college professor, if, if a student tells me that they're a part of the Klan, I can't kick them out of the school. Unless they do something violent to hurt somebody, obviously. But if they just say, you know, they believe in white supremacy, I can't kick them out of the school, whether I want them there or not. But if Black College athlete says he wants to kneel during the national anthem, and that goes against that coach's philosophy, and that athlete chooses to do it, then that coach can say, well, you're not on this team. Goodbye. And can come up with any myriad of reasons to dismiss that student athlete. And then they're no longer a student. They no longer have access to that education that could impact them and their family and their community. They no longer have access to the potential for a professional salary or like future coaching salary. And so they have to think really carefully about whether they, where and when they can practice their politics. So you seem to be saying that a coach can exercise his racial subjectivity in ways that professors on campus cannot. Absolutely. And even if it's not even racial subjectivity, it's their own personal way of how they want to run things. You know, you see it all the time when a college team coach leaves and he gets a better job somewhere, right? And a new coach comes in. Those athletes who inherit that new coach often end up transferring. So that coach has its own way of doing things. If my department gets a new anthropology professor, like we don't, we don't say, oh, well, I don't want to take any of these students or teach any of these students. We don't have those choices. And so it can be about really major political differences and philosophical differences, or it could just be, you're not somebody that I brought in, so I, I don't want you here, so let's get you in here. And sometimes they're done in really amenable ways, but sometimes it depends on the individual coach. And sometimes those coaches, it's about them and their system, and if they don't have people that they know and are experienced or that they brought in themselves, then you're more than likely better off transferring and leaving. So even if college athletes got paid, that would not necessarily lessen the dictatorial powers of the coach. Oh, not at all. There's been a lot of conversation around payment of student athletes. And I know right now all the courts are dealing with the ability to control their likeness and their image. And it's got to start somewhere. So, yes, they need to be doing that. But if now all of a sudden you're getting paid as a student athlete, who's your employer? The coach. So they have one more thing to hold over you. So there's no guarantee that that's going to actually give them any additional freedom. (laughs) It might be one other thing that is used to control their behavior. Now you have a tangible number, right? So I'm just going to make a number, say $20,000, right? My coach is like, well, you want to keep that $20,000. And that student's using that $20,000 to send home, pay for their food in whatever way. Does the university take away certain things from them because now they're getting a salary? So now they're responsible for it on their own with this salary that they're getting. And all all of a sudden, it would be really easy for a coach to manipulate that power. And again, it's not going to be every single coach. But to think that no coach is going to use that as a bargaining tactic or as a strategy to control them is uh, naive to think that that would happen. They do it in other ways, right? So why wouldn't they now use that as a way to maintain their authority? So what compelled you to speak out about this? I guess for me, a lot of it is to help people recognize. And why, you know, I, I got asked this by a fellow graduate student when I was working on my degree. 
you know, he's like, why are you focusing on these special people? You know, they're already getting so much. They're already celebrities. Why are you focusing on them? And what I want people to recognize is less than 1% of, I mean, significantly less than 1% of college football players make it pro out of the college ranks, you know, much less from the population that starts when they're five. And so we're talking about a really minuscule population who even has an opportunity to even get there, much less have substantial careers, much less make lots of money, much less stay healthy. And even the ones who are successful end up broke, end up broken, have harmed. You know, you think about Scotty Pippen and Allen Iverson, former MVPs of the NBA, former top salaries in the NBA, and they're both broke, right? What happens to the guys that they played with in college who never made pro? Where are they at? Who invested just as much, who sacrificed just as much, who were walking around with the same level of injuries but never had anything? Yeah, some of them may have gone on to have good lives and good careers um, in other areas, but most of them did not. Most of them disappeared into the woodwork to be forgotten. And that's who I want to talk about. And I think it's important, even in the context of a space that's, that's about entertainment, that's about joy, that's about celebration of the human body, people can still be hurt, right? And so the powers of institutions like racism doesn't care about class. <laughs> so you can be really powerful, you can be really rich, you can be wealthy, but that doesn't absolve you from violence, especially when it comes to things like racism. And we've all experienced it. So it doesn't matter if you're poor, it doesn't matter if you're, if you're wealthy, it doesn't matter if you're really strong, it doesn't matter if you're weak. Physically, you're going to experience it. And this is what it looks like from a particular population. And most people don't think about that when they're watching college sports. They want longer seasons. They want more playoffs. Forgetting that these are kids. They're literally children. They're 18 years old, and we want so much from them. They don't get to go home for Thanksgiving. They don't get to go home for winter break, you know, for Christmas or holidays. And we want more from them, right? It's never less. You know, keep extending the season. We want the, the college football season to be longer, more playoffs, include more teams. We want the... NCAA tournament to be larger and more teams and have a longer season. And in the end, who pays for it? But Kit, but nobody really wants to take care of them. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.